Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. Does sickness glorify God? Does God get any glory out of you being sick, unhealthy, or weak in your body? A lot of people have been taught that they're in their sickness, God is getting glory. And so what it does, and this is why I want to tackle this today, is that because what it does, when you receive that information, you believe that to be true, that this sickness was God sent and that God's keeping you sick in order to bring out some higher purpose or some, uh, some manifestation of what he desires to do through it all. And you're, you've been deceived into thinking that it's glorifying God as you lay there on that hospital bed. What ends up happening is the devil uses that to strip you of your fight. He uses that to remove the fight in you to actually fight the thing and fend it off. You know, Paul said, you are the fight, the good fight of faith. He didn't say you have to fight the devil. He didn't say you have to fight God. He said you have to fight the good fight of faith. So the only fight the believer is called to fight is the fight of faith. And faith, as I've said it many times on this broadcast, faith is the evidence of things not yet seen, quoting from Hebrews 11.1, 1, which the evidence we have is the Word of God. So what God's Word says, which there's over 2,000, 2,000 scriptures that deal with divine healing and God's will for you to walk in health. So you have, I mean, Jesus said, on the presence of two or three witnesses, let a fact be established. We don't have two or three. There's over 2,000 scriptures that, that deal with the subject of healing. And so you have ample scriptures, a a magnitude of scriptures that prove to you what heaven's will is concerning your body. So if the devil can sow in, you know, Jesus said it's a little leaven that leavens the whole lump, meaning it's just the little foxes that, that, that chew up the vine. It's the little thoughts. It's the little ideologies, the little perspectives that you haven't tweaked to conform with the scripture that end up screwing the whole thing up. And so it's little poor or or misunderstandings like this that strip the fight out of people. And as such, they don't fight the fight of faith. I mean, because think of it. If you believe God put this sickness on you and that sickness is glorifying God, I mean, what court do you plan on taking God to? What where, I mean, what, who's going to fight God and win? What, that's, a, that's a losing battle. If God's at the other end of this thing, then there's, you might as well just throw the, the mitts down and, and give up. You, you might as well just quit ahead of time because there's no hope. If God's at the other end of this thing, I mean, you're fighting a losing battle. You're, 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 you're walking an uphill battle. There, there ain't no light at the end of this tunnel because God, God can't be stopped. And so if, you have, if the devil successfully convinces you that you're ultimately being oppressed by some sort of tutor called sickness that God is using to teach you something or bring about some higher purpose in your life, the devil has successfully stripped the necessary violent faith that it's going to take to actually acquire and receive that which Jesus paid a high price for you to have, which is divine health. I'm going to remind you. One of the scriptures that changed my life was Isaiah 53. By his stripes, you were healed. Jesus took stripes on his back, paid a high price for you to walk in health. 
But the devil is the deceiver of the brethren, the Bible says. The Bible says in John 8, 44, Jesus said when the devil speaks, he always speaks in lies. It's of his nature and he can't change it. Meaning when the devil speaks, he can't tell the truth. He has an inability to speak truth. He only speaks lies. He cannot, I repeat, he cannot tell the truth. And so when he speaks, when he speaks things, his power, the devil's only power is in his voice, in getting you to believe wrong information. Because if you believe wrongly uh, about, you know, things that are covered in the scripture, if you believe wrongly, if you have a misunderstanding, if you have, uh, you believe poor teachings that don't line up with the Bible, that's how the devil operates. That's how he, he disguises himself as an angel of light in that they look like nice, godly, cliche statements. But they have no biblical root or foundation. And as such, when he, he, when he uh, like a fish on a hook, when he hooks you in with that bait because it sounds nice or, you know, it, it gives you a little bit of comfort, but ultimately there's no change. You know, God's word produces change. God's word doesn't just give comfort. God's word gives change. And the devil... What it can't, you know, when the devil speaks, it could provide a temporary comfort. You know, it's easy to say you're glorified in God in your sickness. And then you just, you know, you feel better about yourself because, okay, at least there's a purpose in this. It's e that, that brings a temporary comfort, but ultimately it doesn't bring change. It doesn't bring change. When God speaks, you know, Psalm 107, 20, he sent his word and the product of it was it brought healing and it delivered them from all their destruction. And so it's been traditionally taught that sometimes God uses sickness for mysterious reasons, unbeknownst to any human vessel, in order to fulfill a higher purpose of His. But I want to clear the cobwebs of that. And I don't, you know, I had someone write to me the other day because on my post I did on five, five signs you should leave a church, one of the points is that um, they preach cessationism. They preach that, that the gifts of the Spirit don't function anymore, don't operate, that healing's a thing of the past, the day of miracles is gone, and that we don't, we don't, you know, subscribe to a full gospel thing. A full gospel is God not only came to save you so that you can get to heaven, but he wants to heal you, he wants to deliver you on the earth. That's what I preach. And so this person said, how could you say that? It's been, it's been for uh, 2,000 years, which that's a poor, that's not even an accurate number, but he said it's been 2,000 years that the church has been teaching cessationism. And I'm like, what are you talking about? First of all, cessationism is not a 2,000-year-old doctrine. It's actually a reformed theology, meaning in the 1500s, that's when they started teaching that. Guys like John Calvin and, and others. It's a reformed uh, doctrine. They, didn't, they certainly did not teach that in the early church, and they certainly did not teach that in the disciples from the early church. If you read the writings of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, he talks about the gifts of healing flowing through his ministry and him doing miracles. And he was a disciple of John. He was not one of the original apostles. So cessationism teaches that the gifts of the Holy Spirit stopped flowing between the death of the last apostle and the arrival of the New Testament canon. And so this person said, how can you teach that God still does miracles? For over 2,000 years, the church has been teaching that. First of all, that's wrong. But even if, in early church history, they taught that. If it doesn't line up with this book, it doesn't matter if Augustine said it, it doesn't matter if some other Martin Luther said it, I don't care who said it. I mean, for like a thousand years, they taught that salvation was by works only and not by grace through faith. And so if we're going to go by that, 
I mean, traditionally, the church has taught, it's only the last 500 years that we've adapted to the scriptures where salvation is by grace through faith. It's not the works of any man. You can't earn your way into heaven. So you can't just go by what's been traditionally taught. You know, this is where people have a problem with the rapture. The rapture is not in the Bible. It's, uh, that happened in the 1800s. Some guy came out and started preaching that. But first of all, it is in the Bible. Secondly, there are early church fathers that spoke about the rapture. And thirdly, even if, it, even if early church fathers didn't talk about it per se, it's scripture. It's, this takes the preeminence over any other uh, authoritative document. This has the highest authority in its writing. And so if, even if that guy was right, which he's not, but even if he was right, that over 2,000 years, which that doesn't even make sense because the Bible, the New Testament canon wasn't even formed until... You know, the 60s, uh, well, not the canon. The canon was a hundred, couple hundred years later. But the New Testament letters weren't even written and sent out until like the 60s, 70s. John the Apostle wrote his letters when he was 90. It's probably about 80 AD, something like that, 80, 90 AD. And so that number is totally off. But even if for 1,800 years they didn't teach it, it's in the Bible. And we can actually, you know, like Paul said, study ourselves to show ourselves approved from the Scripture, a workman who need not be ashamed. And so I don't want to preach things just because that's what's been taught. You know, there were things taught to me, and I'm going to get in them. There were things that I was taught growing up in church that are not so. What am I going to read the Bible and say, no, well, my pastor growing up, he never taught that, so it must not be true. No, God's Word has the final say on any given issue. David said it this way, all thy precepts or all thy word concerning all things I consider to be right. And he said, I hate every false way. Meaning David said, if it's not in here, I hate it. I don't want it. I don't adopt it in my mind. I don't receive it in my heart. I don't believe it with my spirit. It's not, it, it doesn't have any influence on my, my life. He said, every precept, every word concerning all things in this book, I consider to be right. David said, I have, I have longed for thy word. Or I've rejoiced over thy word like a treasure. Like a treasure. Meaning, David put a higher value on this than gold or silver or precious stones. Meaning he couldn't even be bought. You, can't, you couldn't buy him. You know, the Bible says, buy the truth and sell it not. Unfortunately, there's a lot of sellouts. They've sold out. They've sold out to religious tradition. They've sold out to, to um, you know, things that are easier to believe about God. You know, that's where you get the book, Love Wins. By I won't name the author, but Love Wins. He came out and wrote a book. Hell doesn't exist. God was just playing around at the end of time, love wins. And he wrote this book and a lot of people received it because they can't, they didn't want to buy the truth and sell it out. They sell out to this doctrine that tells you that God's too much of a loving God to send people to hell, which is not, you know, not biblical. It's not, it has no root in scripture, no foundation in scripture. And so I've made up my mind and I pray you have too. I'm going to buy the truth and I'm selling it not. I'm not going to sell out. Just because it's what's been taught. Just because that's what pastor taught growing up in church. Just because that's what my parents believed. Do you know how many like believers there are? They're like 50, 60 years old and they refuse to actually believe the Bible because there are certain things that their parents didn't believe. Well, you know, our parents are Catholic and we've always prayed to Mary and so we don't. You're really going to go that way? You're really going to go that route? Like you're 50, you're 60 years old. You still haven't learned to think for yourself. You still haven't learned to actually Dig into the word and, and come to a point of maturity where you have your own thoughts about God and from, you know, derived from scripture. 
You're, you're still at a point of spiritual immaturity where you're still being like a bird, a bird that opens up its mouth as a chick in a nest where the mother bird has to come back and chew up the, the worm and then regurgitate it back into the, the baby's mouth. That's how a lot of Christians are. They're just getting regurgitation. They're just getting vomit from what someone else has digested. And it might be good and it might be bad. You know, you have to guard your intake. Just like in eating normal food. If I see mold on something, I ain't eating it. I don't care if it was Wagyu steak, if it's been left out and there's mold on it or, or it was, you know, it's past due, it's past the expiration date. I don't care if it was a $190 piece of like three ounce Wagyu Japanese Kobe steak. I'm not eating that because it, 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 it's, it's, it's moldy. It's not going to do me good. I'm going to end up getting a stomach ache. I'm going to have probably food poisoning from it. There's a lot of people, they take in anything and then their life is a mess. Nothing works in life for them. And then they, they get mad at God when not even realizing it's their own foolishness and their own, you know, spiritual diet that's produced that. Your spiritual diet is more important than your natural diet. You would never go and get bad milk if you saw that the milk had chunks in it and it smelled off and it was foul. You wouldn't drink it. But yet, when you look at, you know, YouTube now has provided a platform for so many people to just share whatever they want. And as a result, you have a lot of believers that have tummy aches and everything's twisted and turning on the inside of them. There's no peace. And it's because they've allowed so many voices that contradict the number one voice, which is the word of God. And as a result, they're suffering unnecessarily because of it. I don't want that to be you. And today we're going to deal with specifically on the subject of sickness and disease. What's your spiritual diet? What have you received? You know, you can't believe God beyond what you have heard from his word. You can't have faith beyond your actual knowledge of God's word. And so if you're listening to a preacher that's not preaching the word of God, but he's just, you know, hit, you know, I penned a few thoughts today on, you know, over my 50, 30 years of ministry, I penned some thoughts on, you know, what I've seen concerning healing and, and ministering healing to the sick. And I just want to share a few thoughts. I don't care about your thoughts. I don't want to preach anything based on, based on what some, you know, you know, he has 30 years of experience. You know, he must know. doesn't matter if you have 90 years of experience. If it doesn't line up with this, I don't want to hear it. I don't, I don't want it. I'm not receiving it. I'm not going to eat it. I'm not eating the apple with the worm sticking out. I want clean diet. I want to have a clean spiritual diet. How about you? So I don't preach, and then, you know, when it comes to traditional stuff and, you know, traditional religious teachings, I don't preach what people want to hear, because it's easy. It's easy to preach what people want to hear. It's easy to tell someone who's sick and dying, say, hey, God's got, you know, God's got this, you're, 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 you're working out a higher purpose. You know, it's easy. You know, when you actually challenge someone to rise up is when you start to tell them, you know, this is the devil's work. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, I'm here as a minister of God to lay hands on you so that you can recover. And I'm going to point you to the word of God that proves that. And then you challenge them with faith. Faith challenges people to not just sit and die in their infirmity, but to rise up and say, I'm going to lay hold. Paul said, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of those things which are ahead of you. Lay hold of the high prize that Jesus Christ uh, paid for you to have. It's easy to let your hands hang limp and get feeble knees. But the Bible 
It's not a book that encourages you to, 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 to give up and quit and just let time take its toll on you. Or just, you know, everything happens for a reason. That's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach everything happens for a reason. The Bible teaches that there's a real devil out like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but resist him. The Bible says to resist. The Bible says, take heart, be of good courage. The Lord is with you. And no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. I'm with you to deliver you. I'm with you to raise you. See, the Bible is a book of encouragement. It's a book that generates faith to not sit here until we die, but to rise up. And just like Matthew 11 says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And I pray today, a violent faith is going to come on the inside of you where you're not going to sit there and just wait till this sickness wipes you out, till Jesus takes you home. But you're going to have a violent faith. Rise up for you to lay hold on that which the kingdom of heaven has to offer you. And part of the kingdom of heaven's uh, benefit program is divine healing for your body. Hallelujah. So the question today is, what does the Bible say about sickness? Is it a tool God uses to glorify himself? Is it something that God uses to accomplish his purpose? And then I want to go through right now, what scriptures do people use to back up those statements? Number one, and I want to remind you, there's some preaching that acts as a bondage breaker. And there's some preaching that acts as a bondage maker. I'm a bondage breaker. I'm not a bondage maker. But Paul said that it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. So now stand fast and don't subject yourself to teaching that will create a yoke of bondage from which Jesus has set you free from. So good, preaching can do one of two things. Preaching can either undo what the devil's done or preaching can actually add more bondage, add more problems. It'll either loosen the bonds of wickedness, the handcuffs of the devil, or it'll tighten them and make things harder for you. So here are some teachings that have been traditionally taught that uh, I'm going to dissect today. And some of you, like myself, and I'm going to get into the first one, which is Paul's thorn in the flesh, but like myself, you were taught some of these things, and as a result, you let your guard down, and you just conceded, and nothing changed. And then it was one day where my pastor sat down, and he dissected Paul's thorn in the flesh with me, and he showed me that that obstacle, you know there's obstacles on your way to divine healing, and the obstacles are not the devil, the obstacles are not... Uh, people. The obstacle are religious teachings, misconceptions about who God is that stand in the way of you and divine healing. And so today, I want to knock out those obstacles. I want to tear down all of those hindrances that would prevent you from accessing God's omnipotent power to receive breakthrough in your body today. Number one, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's thorn in the flesh. If you're just tuning in now, you'd do a great help if you'd share this broadcast. I'm telling you, it's going to set so many people free. It is going to help so many people. This is not a replay, by the way. This is a live. It's October 11th, uh, 1.27 p.m., October 11th, Eastern Time, uh, Tuesday, 2022. This is not a replay. I know I'm on the road, but I've successfully replicated my studio in this uh, home that I'm staying. And so this is not a replay. This is a live stream. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's thorn in the flesh. Listen to this. Matter of fact, before I read that, no, let's read this first, actually. 
It is doubtless, verse 1, not profitable for me to boast. And I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man who in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. This is Paul speaking of himself here. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not even lawful for a man to utter. Of such a man I will, not, I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations given to me. A thorn was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted or become prideful above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times. He asked Jesus three times that it might depart. But Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul here talks about him being caught up into the third heaven, which is heaven itself. There's three heavens. There's the earthly atmosphere. There's the second heavens, which is the, the, um, the atmosphere where, where Satan roams to and fro. That's like in between what we see the sky. And then there's the third heaven, which is heaven itself, where God's throne is. Paul said, I got caught up into the third heavens. And I heard inexpressible things. He had revelation given to him, things that he couldn't even share with human beings. He said, it's not even lawful for me to talk about it. It was so amazing, so incredible. He said, I won't even open up my mouth. It's too overwhelming. I can't even, like, I, I'm speechless. Even if I started talking about it, I'd lose th my thought, train of thought, and I wouldn't be able to finish the sentence. And he said, because of the abundance of the revelation given to me, Paul said, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, many people have taken this to be that this was a sickness, that there was some sort of uh, continual, perpetual battle in his, in his flesh, in his body, that Paul had some uh, long-term you know, disorder in his body. Some people believe it was an eye disorder. Other people believe it was something else, uh, like, you know, stomach problems or whatever, that he had this thorn in the flesh. And they believe it to be a sickness because Paul says it's a thorn in the flesh, in the body. And so many people have, have taught from this passage saying that Paul asked three times for Jesus to heal him. And Jesus said, no, my grace is sufficient for me, for you, for my power is made strong in your weaknesses. And they've, they've totally contextualized this uh, within the context of sickness and disease. But I want to show you how Paul was absolutely not talking about sickness in this passage of Scripture. Number one reason why, well, first of all, before I even do that, even if he was talking about sickness and disease, which he's not, but even let's just play the, the, the advocate here. Even if he was, Paul said it was because of the abundance of revelation given to him, because he had spent time in the third heaven hearing inexpressible words from God. 
Most of these people that say, you know, this is my thorn in the flesh, and they're talking about their sickness or whatever. This is my thorn in the flesh. This is something God's given me because, you know, his power is made strong in weakness. Those people, like, I want to ask them, what abundance of revelation have you received that you even necessitate a thorn in the flesh? You talk to them, they don't even read their Bible most of the time. So it's like they've just been told, you know, the pastor just, to, like I said, religious teachings, it eases people. It makes people feel spiritual when in reality it's the devil working things out. They think it's God working, but it's actually the devil working. And because they don't, see that's the, the thing the devil's a master at. The devil's a master at doing something to someone and then backing off and making you see God as the originator of that trial or that trouble. He's a master at doing something to someone and then totally hiding the fact that he's the origin or the source of that calamity, of that problem, of that sickness. And so that's where he traps people. That's where, you know, Paul said they have been ensnared by the devil having been held in captivity to do his will. Well, Satan's will is sickness. And they're held in mental captivity because they, they haven't been able to identify the source of the problem. And so people think, well, look, Paul had a thorn in his flesh. Paul was a spiritual person. You know, I'm a spiritual person. This is a thorn in my flesh. You know, I'm on the same level as Paul now. Wow. You know, this is actually a good thing. You can see how it can really warp people and their thinking. But I want to show you, first of all, you ask those people, what revelation do you have? I mean, Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. What, what do you have to bring forth? What fresh insight do you have? What is God using this thing, you know, to even bring about in your life and in the life of others? Most 99.99999% of times, they can't give you an answer. Oh, I just don't know. God works in mysterious ways, you know. And then they use, you know, we, we, don't, know what, we don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something, you know, and God's glorifying himself in this. And they say, you know, how could you say that God won't get glory out of this? And we're going to get into how God gets glory out of sickness. And there is a way. But just because God gets the glory out of something doesn't mean he originated the thing. Just because God gets the glory. Like, I'll give you a sneak peek in what, how God gets the glory out of it. He heals you. And we're going to get into the scriptural patterns on every time Jesus healed someone, that's when the glory of God came. That's when people began to praise God and exalt God. But... Just because God got glory out of it does not mean he originated it in the first place. And that's where people have to have a change of mind. They think, well, you know, God, God's allowing it to happen. Obviously, it's because he wants glory to come out of this. Well, yeah, he's allowing something to happen does not mean he's the source of the thing happening. And that's something that needs to be understood. And we're going to get into Job. Anyways, I'm jumping the gun. So Paul says, a messenger of Satan. So what is a thorn in the flesh? First of all, when you study the entirety of scriptures, there's two other times where the scripture brings up the term thorn in the flesh. Both times, I think, are in Deuteronomy and in Numbers. And if you study those scriptures and those, those uh, times where that thorn in the flesh term is brought up, it is always in reference to a people group that were harassing the children of God, harassing the Israelites particularly in the Old Testament. So the Israelites, and I think at one point it was the Amalekites, they were termed the Israel, Israel's thorn in the flesh in that they were like, uh, you know, anyone ever have, like you've put a stick in my wheel? You ever heard that term? Or maybe you've heard the term like you're a, a pain in my rear? That's pretty much what they were saying is that there were people groups in the Old Testament 
that um, Moses, in writing the Pentateuch, Numbers specifically, he says they, they served as a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites in that they were a pain in their rear. They caused them trouble everywhere they went. And it was inescapable. It was inescapable. They caused them trouble. It was like uh, everywhere they went, those people popped up and they, they, they just put unnecessary pressure on them. Paul, if you read First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, listen to this. He goes through, from the Jews, I've received five times the 40 stripes minus one. He got whipped 40, 39 times from the Jews, five times. Three times I was beating with rods from the Jews. One stone from the Jews. Three times shipwreck. A night and day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren. So you continue on and he talks about all these perils, these troubles that came to him. And many times it was from the Jews, he said. And if you study the book of Acts, I actually have it highlighted in purple in the book of Acts all the times. And just on this page, you can see there's, you know, several passages highlighted in pink, uh, in pink, not in purple, in pink, that I highlighted in pink all the times that the Jewish people were chasing him down in different cities and, and, and making his life a living hell on earth, making things hard. He, they made his journeys hard. You know, he goes into one town and these Jewish people follow him there and they stir up the, the people against his message and then they stoned Paul and left him for dead. Then he moves on into another city and those same Jewish people, they followed Paul into that city and did the same thing there. They poisoned the minds of the brethren, even got people that he had successfully won over to the Lord to turn against him. So you see that there is these, these Judaizers, these, these groups of Jewish people that were so vehemently opposed to Paul's doctrine and him preaching the name of Jesus that they wreaked havoc on his work everywhere he went, which this is something that Jesus himself promised Paul would happen in his ministry. And that's why when, you know, Acts chapter 9, Jesus told Paul, I am Jesus and I will show you what great things you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And he wasn't talking about sickness. He was talking about the persecution that he was going to have to bear in bearing the name of Christ everywhere he went. And that's why three times Paul asked Jesus to lift this thorn in the flesh off, these people group that were making his life hard and difficult, to lift those people up, to, to cause them to lose his address, pretty much, you know, lose where Paul was located so he can have like temporary relief. So he can have unhindered gospel proclamation. And Jesus told him three times, my grace is sufficient for you. And he said, Paul, I've already, I already told you this was going to happen. You can't pray off. You can't pray off persecution. You just can't. You can't pray off persecution. There's a difference between suffering at the hands of the devil and suffering at the hands of men because they hate your message. And the devil will stir up people. You can read it in the Old Testament. He steered up people to go against the Israelites. The devil can steer up people to, for, for persecution, to persecute people, to persecute ministries, to persecute events, to, 
to try and hinder the, the progress of the gospel, which Paul said in Philippians, as he's in chains, he actually comes now to grips with it, and he realizes it was actually for the furtherance of the gospel that these things happened to me. Because the more they persecuted Paul, the more the word went out, the more they tried to pressure him and, and tried to uh, suffocate his message, the more it multiplied, the more it increased, the more it blew up. That's why, and then you read it. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. It doesn't say in sickness. And if you study the actual word weakness, it has nothing to do with sickness and disease. It has everything to do with, uh, you know, him being tired. My grace, meaning when you've come to the end of yourself, Paul, that's when my power takes over. And so Paul understood that. That's why he goes on to say, therefore, most gladly, I'll rather boast in my infirmities. And that infirmity you study in the original Greek, it has nothing to do with a sickness or a disease. It has to do with his, his, his physical weakness and the fatigue he was experiencing. He said, I'd actually, I, I boast in it. Not physical sickness. He's talking about the weakness that he saw. I mean, you read it. We just read it. Five times whipped on his back. Jesus took it one time. He took it five times, whipped on his back. Three times shipwrecked in fastings often, night and day at the sea. You read Acts 27 when he was shipwrecked at Malta and the 21 days that preceded that until they hit ground. They were just wandering through the sea and through a storm. I mean, that's not, that's not an easy thing to go through. Paul told Timothy, as a minister of the gospel, as a soldier of Jesus Christ, you must endure hardship. He didn't say you must endure sickness. You must endure hardship because all those things, Paul said, I boast in them because in those moments is when I found that the power of Christ was most evidently manifested through me. Acts 27, he's shipwrecked at Malta. He's got nothing. They just, it's raining. It's cold. Paul's making a fire, assisting the natives of the, of the island. And then within three days, the whole island is saved. The whole island is healed. The whole island has experienced a, a mighty revival, so much so that if you go to Malta today, there's a church that's planted still to this day, and there's a massive Christian population because of that one trip Paul took. So he's at the end of himself. He's a, he gets shipwrecked at Malta. He's, he's, I'm sure, tired in his body. I'm sure he's, he, he's still recovering from the stripes that he had just taken, the rods that he had been beaten with. He, he's at the end of himself. He gets to Malta, and that's where the power of Christ began to beam through him to the point where the whole island was impacted. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproach, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. Do you see sickness there? No, he doesn't say I take pleasure in sickness. He says I take pleasure. He didn't take pleasure in sickness. He cast out sickness out of people. Acts 27, Acts 28, I mean, he, he ends up clearing the whole island of Malta from sickness and disease. So he says I take pleasure in infirmity and reproach and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. So everything he says I'm taking pleasure in, it's for Christ's sake. Him being sick, sick would not be for Christ's sake. Him being sick, how is that for Christ's sake? If Paul was sick and confined to a bed, he wouldn't have been able to do everything he did. He wouldn't have been able to travel. He wouldn't have been able to bring the gospel to Macedonia, to Ephesus, to Thyatira, to Rome. He wouldn't be able to do, do any of those things. So he's saying the thing that this thorn in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan, which if you read messenger, it's the word angelos, which is, a, I wrote it down here, the word angelos is 179 times translated angel and seven times in scripture translated messenger. Never is it translated physical infirmity or sickness and disease. So Paul actually tells you what the thorn is. It's a messenger of Satan. It's obviously a demon that was steering up people everywhere he went. Steering up Jews, steering up, he said, in perils of the Gentiles. You know, when he went to Ephesus, he got chased out of town. There was a, in Damascus, when he started preaching, there was a warrant for his arrest and execution out. In Acts chapter 16, when he's at, um, he's in jail with, Bar with uh, Silas, Paul and Silas in jail, jailed by Gentiles because he had cast a demon out of a woman that was a fortune teller. And they didn't like that because she brought them much profit through fortune telling. So they threw him into jail. You see, like, that's, the devil was constantly steering people up to try and hinder Paul's work. And G, Paul tried to pray it off. Jesus said, no, this is necessary for the furtherance of the gospel. So number one, you have Paul's thorn in the flesh. It, didn't, it wasn't sickness that was glorifying God. It was the persecution that Paul endured faithfully to the end. That he said at the end of his life, I have poured out my life as a drink offering to the Lord. And in the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's the glory. It was in his persecution. Number two, let's go to Job. Did Job, you know, what about Job? Job brought God glory through his sickness and all that. Job brought God glory in that he never cursed God. And he didn't charge God with wrong. But God did not get the glory while Job was sick. God got the glory at the end of the book in Job, Job 42, where the Bible says the Lord turned the captivity of Job and gave him double everything he had ever lost. And then if you study Job, let's read in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Now, this doesn't happen anymore. This was at a time where Satan could present himself before the Lord. Now, Revelation 12 says, Satan has been cast out of heaven. Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Revelation 12 says, there's no more place found for him in heaven. So the devil cannot go to God now and, and you know, have conversation with him. There's no place found for him in heaven. But at this point of history, there, he, was, um, he was still able to come into heaven and obviously converse with God. So Satan answered the Lord and said, I've been going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Verse 10, this is one of the best scriptures in the Bible. Have you not made a hedge around Job, around his household? around all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Job, Satan was like, even if I wanted to strike Job, I can't even get to him because you've put a hedge of protection around him, his household, over everything that he has and you've increased him exponentially in the land. Even if I wanted to stretch my hand towards him, I can't. There's a, 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 a thick layer of protection around Job and all that pertains to Job, all that, all that belongs to Job. He said, even if I wanted to hit his kids, I can't. There's a force field of, the, of, of, uh, of protection around him. You know, Job had his righteousness built on 
his sac the sacrificial system. You know, the Bible says, you read it earlier in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, verse 5, that he would, he would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt sacrifices, burnt offerings to the Lord. And so his, his righteousness was not built on, on the blood of Jesus at that point. There was no blood shed. And so he had to go through this, this um, sacrificial system to have temporary right standing with God. And then if you read Job chapter 3, it says that the thing which I have feared has come on me. The thing which I have dread, dreaded has come to me. Meaning that Job's fear, and you read it in Job 1, Job feared that his kids would have cursed God. He, Job, Job lived in fear. He lived in fear. He wasn't operating in faith. He wasn't offering sacrifice to God in faith. He was doing it pretty much to like, you know, I've had a lucky streak right now. Everything's been going good. I hope my kids didn't curse God and all this, all this would be stripped from me. Job was, was doing all those things out of fear. And so when Satan, and we're going to read about it, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with boils, Job 2.7. God, God did not strike Job with boils. All God did was lift the protection that was on Job's life. So that Satan can come in and attack. Something he had already desired to do, obviously. Because he said, I can't even touch him. I've tried before, but there's a hedge of protection around him. Now understand this. This is the good news about this. The hedge that was around Job was retractable. It was removable. Because, like I said, his righteousness was not based on the finished work of the cross because it hadn't been done yet. Our righteousness is based on the finished work of the cross. Our righteousness is based on the blood of Jesus and what Jesus did for us at Calvary 2,000 years ago. And as such, there is an, an irremovable, an unretractable hedge of protection around you, around your body, around your family, around your household, around everything that you possess that the enemy no longer, unless you allow him, and you allow him through your word, that's how you give the devil a foothold, by your confession. Your confession will either shut the door on the devil or it'll open up the door to the devil to come in and have free reign to do whatever he wants to do. But that hedge of protection that was in Job's day that didn't allow Satan to come in and it didn't allow him to penetrate into Job's affairs. That hedge is on you. The only difference is, is we have a covenant with God now. Job didn't have covenant with God. Job didn't have the blood of Jesus. Job didn't have the Mosaic covenant. Though Job is in the middle of your Bible right before Psalms, uh, chronologically and historically, it actually is between probably Noah and Abraham. That's when these events transpired. So there was no... There was no Abrahamic covenant in the days of Job. There was no Mosaic covenant. Job couldn't open up a Bible. There was no Bible in Job's day. Job had very limited revelation about who God was. He understood the creation account. They had obviously some sort of sacrificial system set up already. Um, you know, the Bible says they called on the name of the Lord. In, Adam called on the name of the Lord. So obviously they were sacrificing animals even in Adam's day. They were doing so he had some sort of knowledge about who God was. He had an understanding of the creation account. He recognized God as creator and he knew that there was a promised seed that was going to come one day to make everything right because if you read Job 9:33 it says I know my redeemer lives and he shall yet stand on the earth again and make peace between us and God. So he understood that there was a redemption coming and redeemer coming. However, he didn't have a Bible that he can open up and turn to Exodus 15, 26 and say, hey, uh, if, 
um, that if, if, if you shall diligently hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, that the Lord will not allow any of the diseases which came upon the Egyptians to come on you. For I, the Lord, am Jehovah Rapha. He couldn't call on Jehovah Rapha. He didn't know God as healer. He didn't know God as, 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 um, as healer and as his strength. He had no clue about that side of who God was. Job didn't have a Bible. Job didn't have a covenant. Job had like a Windows 95 covenant. He was operating on an old operation system. He didn't have what you and I have today. And so listen to this. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And if you, let me read it. I know for the sake of time, I can go real long on this, but. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Was it the Sabaeans that did that? Or was it Satan steering up the Sabaeans to do that? See, it's like what I said before with, with Paul. Satan can steer up people to, to make life difficult for you. He did that. The Sabaeans raided them and took them away and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. Now we understand that this was the working of the devil. Like I said before, the devil's master plan is that he steers up people to afflict and to harm God's people, and then he backs up and gets people, the ones that are afflicted, to be confused as to the origin of the source of their trial and of their problem. You go on, while he was still speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. Was it God? No, it was the devil. God didn't send the fire. It was the devil. The fire, but Job understood it to be the fire of God, that God was doing all these things to him to bring about some higher purpose. You move on. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the, Ch the Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away and killed the rest of the servants with the storm. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the earth. So here you have... The devil getting Job to think the Sabaeans were his problem, God was his problem, the Chaldeans were his problem, and nature, a natural disaster, a great fierce wind swept across and destroyed the four corners of the house and it fell down on the young people and they're dead. So it's always, the devil always pointed it to the natural, natural uh, opposition. It was a natural disaster that killed your kids. It was the fire of God that, that destroyed your crops. It was the Chaldeans and the Raiders and the Sabaeans that did all these things. When in reality, it was always the devil the entire time. It was the devil the entire time. And so, did, did Job, how did Job bring... James chapter 5, let me read this. Where was the glory in Job's life? Where, was it in him staying down and bruised for those 18 months? Scholars believe it was 18 months that he stayed like that. Was, was the glory given to God when he was like struck down and broken and confused? Was that when, you know, that's how Job's life ended and, you know, he stuck through it all and that's why God was pleased? No, listen to this. James 5 actually tells you the purpose of the book of Job. James chapter 5 and beginning with verse 11. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured... You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and you have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So James, the brother of Jesus, dissecting the book of Job, says, you've seen his perseverance, and that's great. He glorified God in how he persevered despite what came against him. And I'm telling you, 
In this life, you're going to have trial and tribulation. But the verse doesn't end there. Take heart, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world and I've deprived it of ever hurting you or harming you. And so James says, the attack came to Job and he glorified God because he never turned his back on God. But here's where the ultimate glory came to God. You have seen the end, the result, the outcome intended by the Lord. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. What was the outcome? And Job died as poor as his turkey and as sick as a leper. And, you know, we just... Now we can just understand when everything is going helter-skelter and seems like the whole world's turned upside down over your life, you could just know, I'm Job. First of all, Job was 18 months. That's what scholars believe. Some people think they're Job and it's like 40 years into it. I'm just Job. Job was 18 months. And listen to how the story ended. You know, people would have a very, a, a much easier time reading the Bible and understanding Scripture and interpret, interpreting it properly if they would just finish books and not just take one scripture out of context and build an entire theological disposition on that. If they would just read the entire book and study it from, from finish to end, you know, like evangelist Tiff Shuttlesworth says, start in the Bible, stay in the Bible, finish in the Bible. Start the book, stay with the book and finish the book. Don't just build an entire doctrine based on like a, a, a part of a verse. That doesn't, uh, doesn't even uh, groove with the rest of Scripture. Listen to how Job's life ends. Now, verse 12, Job 42, 12. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginnings. For he had, he had 7,000 sheep before, now he has 14,000. He has 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hupak. Aren't you glad you're not named Hupak? In all the land were, were, in the, all the land were, fan, were found no woman so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four entire generations. And Job died old and full of good days. Hallelujah. Wow. Doesn't that make the book of Job much better when you finish it? <laughs> it's like starting a movie and getting to the point where, you know, it'd be like watching The Passion of the Christ and then... Get, getting to the point where Jesus is crucified and he breathes his last and then shutting the movie off and saying, wow, man, that movie was hard to watch. Yeah. And if the gospel ended there, it'd be a pretty, it wouldn't be a gospel. We can't call that good news. It'd be morbid news. That's how people read Job. They shut it off midway through. Finish the book. Job died 140 years after after the ordeal. He, some people think he was probably about 80 years old, something like that, when all that happened. So 140 years, that's 280, 140. That's 220 years old. If those were accurate numbers. And saw his children and grandchildren for four entire generations, and he died old and full of good, of, of good days. Job 5.22, the Bible says, You shall go to the grave. As a sheaf of corn in its season, you shall go to the grave at a good old age. God told Abraham, 
I'm going to, you're going to glorify me because with Genesis chapter 15, 15, you will go and depart with, to your fathers in peace and you shall bury, be buried at a good old age. I didn't glorify God for you to die at 21 years old because of some sort of sickle cell anemia or whatever. It glorifies God. With long life, you're satisfied. And I'll show you my salvation. God gets glory when you walk in health. John 9, this is another one. I'm just dissecting all these so that you'll have like a line of defense next time someone brings up, well, what about the guy in John 9? John 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. So people say this. People, they, they read this. Religious teaching has taught that um, when Jesus answered, remember the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Because they were, they were thinking like, you know, born blind, this guy must be cursed. So what was it? Did he sin in the womb? Or was it his parents that sinned? Maybe they had him out of wedlock. Who knows? What happened that this guy was born blind? Because we know that blindness is like a curse. Something obviously happened. And then what did Jesus say? Neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned. So Jesus was saying that he wasn't born blind because of anyone's particular sin. He was born blind because of original sin. Original sin. When man fell, remember Romans chapter 5 verse 12. The scripture says that through one man's disobedience, sin entered the world and death spread to all men for all men's sin. Meaning when Adam sinned, he gave the keys of authority to govern planet earth. Remember, Adam governed planet earth. Adam was in dominion over all the earth. When he sinned, he gave that key of dominion to the devil and the devil has had a actual legal authority over the unredeemed ever since then. He's had free reign. That's why there's poverty in the world. That's why there's famine. People look, how can there be a God and the world's run like this? God's not the God of this world. Whoa, how could he say that? Unsubscribe. I'm not watching him anymore. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the devil, the God of this age, has blinded the minds which, of them who do not believe. So God is sovereign in that he rules the universe. But the Bible actually says in Daniel 7, 27, there will be a day where the kingdoms of this world will be given to, to Christ and to us, his saints, and the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of his, of his Christ and of his saints. That's in Daniel 7, 27. That there's going to be a day where there's going to be a transference of the authority to rule the kingdoms of this world. But that's why when Jesus was on the earth, they wanted to make him king. He, he went and hid himself because he, his purpose was not to take over the kingdoms of this world just yet. There will be a day where there's going to be a, a switcheroo where everything's going to come under his dominion and under his reign. Practically, even the rule of law, everything is going to be under the, the, mess, the Messiah's domain. But until then, the devil is the god of this age. The word age there is ageon, and sometimes it's cosmos. Um, when, when the Bible talks about cosmos or aegean, it's talking about the system of this world. It's talking about the wicked system, the corrupt system that is in place, that the devil is the, he is the God or the ruler or the emperor of this corrupt system of this age. So when Adam 
gave Satan legal authority to govern this age and this cosmos, this system of this world, that's when sin entered the world. That's when children started to be born with deformities. That's when blindness came. That's when things got warped and stopped uh, adhering to God's order of perfection, which they had in Eden. So when Jesus says, neither this man sin or his parents, he was, he was actually pointing back to original sin. How do we know that? Because he finishes off by saying, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So I'm going to pause here. Many people think that uh, Jesus was saying here that neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but this man was born blind because one day I was going to come and open up his eyes. And that, you know, that's what was going to bring glory and people would recognize me as Messiah. That's not what Jesus was saying here. Neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. There's a period there. Understand this. In the original manuscripts, there's no period, comma, or punctuation. The punctuation was added later on by men. Because, you know, it's just for easeability in, in reading. The readability of things. But there was no period there. So the period there is, is subject to man's interpretation of things. I heard a preacher say this, and I agree. He said there should actually be a comma. So that it reads this way. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Period. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. So neither this man nor his parents sinned. Meaning relegating this thing to the original sin of man. It's not in any individual's particular sin. It's the original sin that caused this. Period. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night is coming when no man can work. People use this that. The, the, the work of God was God making him blind so that Jesus can come and undo his blindness and that was the work of God. So the whole thing was God originated and God finished. No. Jesus was saying, sin caused this, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. What was the work of God? 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God was made manifest that he might destroy the work of the devil. Everything hell had set up in this man's life so that he was born blind. Jesus said that the work of God should be revealed in him. I must now work the works of him who sent me while it is day. What was the work of him who sent me? What did Jesus proceed to do? Open up his eyes. Reverse the toll that the devil had laid on him. Reverse the crash of hell on this man's life. Reverse the order of the wicked system of this world that had imposed itself on this man who was born blind. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me. What was the work? To reverse the devil's work. To reverse the, the effect of the original sin. That's what Jesus came to do. Every hardship, every trouble, every sickness, every disease, every stress, every anxiety, every depression, everything that wasn't in Eden can be traced back to Satan. Jesus said, my purpose, I must do the works of him who sent me. What was the works? For this reason, the Son of God was made manifest that he might destroy the work of the devil. So now you can see how this can be twisted in a negative sense. But what it actually is saying is totally opposite of what religious people teach. Neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see, God made him blind. Because uh, he wanted to get glory. He wanted to get glory out of him. First, first of all, even if that was true, where did God get glory 
out of the, the man staying blind? Did Jesus say, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is yet day? And he just moved on and left the man blind. And man, the people just rejoiced hysterically. No, where did God get the glory? When he opened up his, blind, his eyes, he spat on the floor, made clay, wiped it on his eyes and said, go and wash. And when he came back, he went and he, 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 he came, he went, washed and came back seen. And then he recognized Jesus as Messiah. That's where the praise came to God. That's when the glory came. So even if you want to use God made him blind, I mean, like I said, finish the story. Because if you want to say he, the glory of God was in him being blind, it wasn't in him being blind. The glory of God was in him seeing. It was in his eyes being opened. Had he left this man's eyes blind, it would have been an entirely different story. It would have been a failure of Jesus' ministry. His eyes came open, proving that the works of him who sent me, to do, that Jesus said, I must do while it is yet day, was to uns, unstop the deaf ears, open the eyes of the blind, heal the sick. Any toll that Satan had laid, any weight, any destruction that Satan has, had put on people's bodies, Jesus said, my work is to undo it. And I, I declare in the name of Jesus, you that are watching, I feel like there's light bulbs that have lit up right now. I declare in the name of Jesus, those of you that are listening to me right now, that the light bulb has illuminated in you and you finally saw, man, I've not been taught the right way. I mean, the work of God is to undo the work of Satan. I'm not glorifying God in this. I'm going to glorify God by getting well. I'm going to glorify God by receiving the, the, the product of healing that comes by the finished work of the cross. You know, from you to Calvary came sin. You transferred from you to Calvary. Sin, sickness, and destruction. But from Calvary to you, from Jesus on that cross to you, came health, righteousness, and restoration. And I decree in the name of Jesus, everything the devil has set up in your life, every, all the toll that the enemy's work in your body has taken on your body and taxed your body, in the name of Jesus, it is broken today. I loose you from that infirmity. I declare you whole. I declare you healthy. I declare you strong in Jesus' name. I command the work of Satan to be obliterated in your body. I, I call, I command that hand of that spirit of infirmity that's laid that cancer on your body, laid that dysfunction on the, in the organs of your body. I command that hand to come off you today. The hand of the devil that's weighed your body down, it lifts off your life today in Jesus' name. And I loose the healing power of God right through you. From the top of your head to the soles of your feet, I declare you whole. Thy faith has made thee well, son. Thy faith has made thee well, daughter. Just like Jesus said, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Number, th that was number, what was that? Number three story? Number four story. People use Luke chapter 13. Actually, people don't use, let me just quote it. Jesus goes into the synagogue. There's a, man, a woman there bent over double. And the Bible says when Jesus saw her there, he went and called her to himself. And he said, woman, you are loose from this infirmity. And he said, he, 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 he declared it. You foul spirit of infirmity, come off her. And the spirit of infirmity, notice how it wasn't God that was doing that to her. It was a spirit of infirmity. And he loosed her from that infirmity. And the Bible says immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And it was the religious people that got mad and angry and indignant about what Jesus had done. Jesus said, you are hypocrites. This daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound 18 years, 
She should be loosed on this Sabbath from her bondage. And the Bible says, and the people glorified God. And they said, we have never seen anything like this in all of Israel. In Matthew chapter 9, 33, there's two blind men that come to Jesus. And Jesus opens up their eyes. Uh, sorry, Matthew 9, 33, there's a man who is demon-possessed. Demon-possessed and a mute man who never spoke. And when Jesus cast the demon out, his mute mouth spoke. He began to speak again. And they said, we've never seen anything like this in all of Israel. And the people glorified God. The Bible says, let me read it actually. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. No, rather, we're going to go to Luke chapter. Where is it? Luke chapter. Ah, man. Oh, Luke chapter 5. There you go. Luke chapter 5. And verse... 17, now it happened on a certain day he was teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present to heal them and behold men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed whom they sought to bring in and lay before him and when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling in the midst of before Jesus and when he saw their faith he said man your sins are forgiven you and the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason saying who is this man who speaks blasphemies who can forgive sins but God alone but when Jesus perceived that their thoughts uh, perceived their thoughts he reasoned and said to them which is easier to say why are you reasoning in your hearts which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk but that you may know the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins he said to the man who was paralyzed I say to you arise take up your bed and walk and immediately he rose up before them took up on what he had been lying on and departed to his own house and they were all amazed and they glorified God and they were filled with fear and they said we have seen strange things today where did God get the glory? When the man was healed. Not when the man was paralyzed. When the man was healed. They were all amazed and they glorified God and they said, we have seen strange things today. John 11, Lazarus. Everybody loves to use Lazarus. You know, Jesus, he delayed the healing. You know, he, he delayed. He waited four days. You know, he could have come. Sometimes God delays the process. First of all, the reason why Jesus delayed going to Lazarus was because he was trying to fulfill a messianic uh, sign. Because in those days, the Pharisees taught that a, a body, when it dies, the spirit of the man or the woman that died would actually linger around the body for three days, wanting to get back in. But on the fourth day is when decomposition of the body settled in. And so what they believed is that after the fourth day, that the soul or the spirit of the person would be sent to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. And whether in Abraham's bosom or in Gehenna, which is actual hell, that's where they would spend, uh, that's where they'd spend their, 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 the rest of their, you know, until Jesus raises the dead. So the, the belief was that the soul of that person would hover around the body. So Jesus purposely waited to the fourth day until decomposition settled in to Lazarus's body to show that he had power over even the region of death, even over Sheol, to call back Lazarus's soul from Sheol, from the region of death, something nobody had ever done, not Elijah, not Elisha. Nobody had ever done that. Nobody raised someone from the dead after four days. And so Jesus did that as a messianic sign. 
That's why it's important to understand context and stuff because you take that and you can get into all kinds of allegorical preaching and all kinds of, you know, twisting your own thoughts. You know, sometimes God waits four days before he... It's like, no, he was doing that on purpose for that case. And then even on that, you know, people say, you know, uh, Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death, but unto the glory of God. That's what Jesus told Martha. And he's like, sometimes the glory of God is, you know, is in that sickness. No, the glory of God was not in Lazarus dying. The glory of God was in Lazarus raising from the dead. The glory of God was in not only Lazarus raising from the dead, but whatever sickness he had before, he got healed of it because obviously he didn't die four more days later. He stayed well. He stayed whole. He stayed healthy. So, you know, even, even Martha, when Jesus came to the scene, Martha said, Lord, I know that you're a man. I know that you're from God and whatever you ask God, he'll do for you. And Jesus said he'll, raise, he'll rise again. Martha was so religiously brainwashed that she said, yes, I know he'll rise again on the last day. He, she wasn't even setting her faith for an immediate miracle. This is what Dake says. Martha did not ask such a favor in direct terms. She expressed the faith in his ability to do it. Martha knew God could do anything, but she had not expressed faith to receive the miracle here and now. And there's a lot of people that they're like, you know, how many of you know the ultimate healing's in heaven? Ultimately, you know, that's when everything, that's when, that's when we'll, we'll be strong again. You know, that's when God will give us the ultimate healing. And they have this Martha mindset. Yes, Lord, at the last day. Yes, Lord, at the last day. But Jesus said, no, I'm the resurrection and the life now. You don't have to wait till death uh, till death takes you out before you receive a glorified body. You can, you can take part of the first fruits, which is divine healing for your body now. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Martha was saying at the last day, I know that you'll raise him up. Jesus said, no, you don't have to wait for the last day. He can be healed and raised up right now. I am the resurrection, of the, uh, and the, the resurrection and the life. So for you that are watching right now, don't make death your savior. People have made death their savior. How I many of you know when we die, that's when, then when we die, that's when we'll have streets of gold. Then when we die, that's when we'll be blessed. Then when we die, that's when we'll be in his presence. I can be in his presence now. Death's not my savior. Jesus is my savior. He tore the veil from top to bottom so that I can access in to the blessing of God, the presence of God, take part of his healing power, receive his healing, his healing power, walk in divine strength and health and vitality now. Hear it now. Unbelief is always speaking in later terms. How many of you know one day? Faith says now. Now faith is the evidence of things not yet seen. The substance of things hoped for. Now. Set your faith to receive now. God wants to heal you now. Today's the day of salvation. Now's the day to be healed. God said, I will not push off till tomorrow that which I have power to do today. And when your faith says yes now, God's not going to say later. If your faith says yes now, then you can experience his raw power now. That Syrophoenician woman. Lord, I need my daughter delivered. Jesus answered her not a word. She cried out all the more. Jesus said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Yeah, but even the little dogs get the feast from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I don't need the whole loaf. I just need the crumb. You know what that tells you? She understood God's power was so strong over demons and over demonic power and over sickness and disease, that she I don't even need the whole loaf. Healing is the children's bread, but I don't even need the whole loaf. I just need a crumb that falls from the table, and that's sufficient. Just your pinky can fend off any devil of hell. I don't need the full hand. I just need your pinky. I just need the, the end, the tip of the nail on your pinky. And I know 
that I'll be all right. I believe the anointing's on uh, right now. The anointing's very strong right now. And I believe God's going to heal some of you right now. As the light bulbs have gone off, that sickness is being flushed out of your system. In Jesus' name, I, I loose the healing power of God. Just like we just read in Luke chapter 5, 17, the healing power of the Lord was present to heal those that were there. I believe the healing power of the Lord is hovering over you right now. All you have to do is receive it. Just like you received Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life and you got forgiven, you can receive Jesus as healer of your body and He'll heal your body. You know that you're a member of His body? You're a member of His flesh and of His bones. Ephesians 5 says that. And no man ever hates his own body, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. You're part of His church. God's nourishing power is going to nourish your physical body right now. I see the strength of God coming alive in you. I see the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, quickening your mortal body even now. I see that pancreas coming back to life again. I see your joints that have been dislocated being fused back together. I see broken bones being fused back together. I see joints that have caused you pain and malaise over years and years and years. I've seen even the cartilage in your vertebrae that's rubbed down so thin that there's barely anything there and it causes you excruciating pain in your back. I see the hand of God going into your spine and into your into your vertebrae and adding cartilage to your body. That which cannot even be re repaired is being replaced in your body. In the name of Jesus Christ, I see eyes that have a film over it being opened in Jesus' name. I see in the name of Jesus, I see auditory nerves being totally uh, uh, repaired by the hand of God right now. You know, there was a lady in a service recently in Montreal, Canada, and she was, she was deaf in, her, in one of her ears. And uh, she, she, I was preaching and ministering along these lines to people, and I called her up, and when she came up, the first step of faith that she took to come up to the altar, her ears popped right open, and she could hear as clear as, as ever. The Lord touched her ears. I see the, the hand of God unclogging, Anything that's got into your auditory system that has prevented you from hearing properly, in Jesus' name, it's being opened to the glory of God. Just like Jesus said, epatha, which means be opened unto the glory of God. Your ears are being opened for the glory of God. Those of you who have 50% hearing, you're going back to 100%. You'll be able to hear a pin drop 50 feet away, in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.